0: Welcome to the Fallon Forum, where we bring you independent voices and civil dialogue across the political divide. I'm Ed Fallon, your host, and we are coming to you from the heart of America's heartland, Des Moines, Iowa, also known as Charles, the cultural <laughs> and culinary crossroads <laughs> of America. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, take that, Minneapolis. Hey, <laughs> yeah, so if you value what we do, we could use your support. Uh, visit the donations page on the Fallon Forum website, or if you run a small business or nonprofit, caveat, doing good work in the world then consider becoming a sponsor as well. And uh, speaking of sponsors, uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe. That's Des Moines' locally owned grocery and specialty food store. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Uh, check out Gateway's catering and floral services as well. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Uh, thanks also to Architecture by Synthesis. Owner Mark Klipschum says that no matter how you plan or renovate your project, Please use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. That's architecture by synthesis. All right, so later in the program, Charles and I will discuss affirmative action. And uh, Kathy and I will be talking about the impact of climate change on current and future food production. But first, it is my delight to welcome uh, Guy McPherson to the program. Guy, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it, gentlemen.
0: And I, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that you are kind of the, um, the, the lead climate scientist that other climate scientists like to dislike. <laughs> well,
1: they that... certainly like to dislike me, although I've <laughs> never called myself a climate scientist. Yeah,
0: and you, um, and you, uh, and you do, you believe strongly and have held this contention for a while that uh, climate change, the way it's heading, will in the near future result in human extinction. Would you like to um, lay that out for us?
1: Yeah. In fact, my response to this question is particularly long, so I'd appreciate you giving me a few minutes to answer. Okay. Soon after we lose habitat for our species, all individuals of our species will die. That's just the way it works. We need to have habitat. That's the case with all species, including at least eight species in the genus Homo, our, our genus, that have already gone extinct primarily as a result of rapid changes in planetary temperature. So it's not as if there isn't some precedence for the members of the genus Homo species within the genus Homo going extinct as a result of rapid changes in planetary temperature. All species need habitat to survive. And I don't want to get into too much detail on what habitat means, but the bottom line is it's organism specific. It relates to the ability of a species to secure everything needed to survive and also to reproduce and already humans are losing habitat throughout the world for our continued survival okay now that said we've already passed the point of no return in the climate crisis even the incredibly conservative political body known as the intergovernmental panel on climate change which from now on i'll call the ipcc admitted on October 8th, 2018 that Earth is in the midst of the most rapid environmental change in planetary history.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: They they cited peer-reviewed papers that conclude, quote, these global level rates of human driven change far exceed the rates of change driven by geophysical or biosphere forces that have altered the trajectory of the Earth system in the past. Even abrupt geophysical events do not approach current rates of human driven change. So that line comes from the IPCC report, global warming of 1.5 degrees. Less than a year later, the IPCC also concluded that climate change is irreversible. In its September 24, 2019, special report on the ocean and cryosphere change in climate. And here's the signature quote from that report, which concluded that an overheated ocean was responsible for the irreversibility of climate change. Quote, ocean acidification and deoxygenation, ice sheet and glacier mass loss, and permafrost degradation, degradation are expected to be irreversible on timescales relevant to human societies and ecosystems." End quote. And this report quoted five peer-reviewed papers in reaching this conclusion. So in other words, based on two reports issued less than a year apart, the IPCC has concluded that climate change is abrupt and irreversible respectively. And the IPCC is an incredibly conservative organization has sure. pointed out even in the conservative peer-reviewed literature yep. so you know even, even before these two reports were published by the ipcc the peer-reviewed literature concluded we were and are headed for the loss of all life on earth as a result of rapid environmental change
0: but even some and, who even some who uh, put out that that statement don't necessarily agree with that they, they, they agree with the uh, analysis but not the final conclusion correct
1: Absolutely, that's correct. Yes, lots of people agree that we are experiencing the most rapid change in planetary history, but we'll be fine. Now, in contrast, consider this. An article in Scientific Reports, which is an open access journal as part of the renowned Nature series, was published on November 13th, 2018, written by conservation biologists, Strona and Bradshaw. And the paper concluded that all life on Earth will likely go extinct as a result of a five or six degree C increase in the global average temperature. And the evidence I've uncovered, all published in peer-reviewed journals, indicates we could hit that mark, not within a few hundred years, but within a few decades. And remember, we've already eclipsed the 2C Rubicon. So So, things things are changing very rapidly. It's that rate of environmental change that dictates whether a species will be able to adapt and survive. I think that's an important thing that is frequently, very very frequently
3: overlooked. Guy, can we go back to your initial premise or statement, which is that, you know, other homo species have already preceded us uh, into extinction. And um, maybe you could clarify, because I, I... I would assume that most people don't understand that 98% of all life on Earth that existed at one time has gone extinct because of habitat changes, weather changes, climate. I'm sorry, not weather changes, climate changes. Comets. Right. Well, or whatever, you know, cataclysmic right. events. So are we talking about uh, glaciation and ice ages as eradicating other Homo species? What are we talking about?
1: interestingly it's almost always planetary warming that causes species extinction in the genus homo Mm
3: -hmm. and And so whom would we you know for instance which one of our our predecessors uh, would you i mean are we saying that for instance neanderthals went extinct because of habitat changes or
1: neanderthals almost certainly went extinct as a combination of changes in the environment and also Outright murder. Competition the, from the, us. More successful Homo sapiens right. that came. Okay. But it's the, it's the half a dozen species before Homo neanderthal incest showed up mm-hmm. that we're talking about as being affected almost exclusively by, by. planetary creatures.
3: Yeah, it, you know, I, and I've talked about this previously, that the sad part of all this is that we've kind of wasted probably one of the most temperate periods in, mm-hmm. in right. the climate history of the Earth. Uh, absolutely. That's and, absolutely correct. Right. And that, you know, by the Industrial Revolution, basically put an end to that. And now, as you say, um, this is the norm. I mean, the norm for species on Earth is to become extinct. Um, right.
1: It's more than 99 percent of species that have ever but, existed.
0: But, but, but it's rare that a species will uh, will work itself into extinction.
3: Usually it's got some exterior um, help. Uh, but yeah,
2: but let me let me uh, well,
3: Because I don't think we understand we, we don't totally understand the synergisms of what we do, um, and you know the chaotic nature of phenomenon, which is sure. Uh, and that's because you know we we are totally deterministic science, a very a very literal deterministic science, and that's not the way things work at this level. Let me let me ask you something, uh,
0: guy. Uh, uh, David Wallace Wells, uh, very well known author, The Uninhabitable Earth. Uh, seem to be pretty much in your camp but recently I'm um, just like last week I think it was in in the New York Times uh and I'll quote Wallace Wells sees that the level of doom he once predicted is much less likely while five degrees of warming once seemed possible scientists now estimate that the earth is on track to warm by two to three degrees and Wallace says quote I've grown more optimistic than I used to be is Wallace is Wallace Wells wrong?
1: Yes, of course he is. And he's lying. Besides,
0: let oh, me explain. Okay.
1: First of all, we're already past two. Secondly, even the incredibly conservative political body known as the IPCC admits that we've right. triggered self-reinforcing feedback loops that will greatly accelerate the rate of change. Okay. Now let's talk about Wallace Wells a little bit. He wrote a well-read, well-read article based on a three-hour conversation that he had with me and my partner. It's a beautiful work of pure plagiarism that produced the best-selling book (laughs) and the best-selling television series. I did did not know I hit that nerve, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He stole every single idea and almost all the words from me. He's making a lot of money off my work. Of course he's offering hope, none of which is rooted in evidence. In addition, according to the Merriam-Webster online dictionary, hope is defined as follows, quote, to cherish a desire with anticipation to want something to happen or be true. In quote, in other words, to hope is to wish, I want a lot of things to happen to be true. Wishing doesn't make them so. But hope sells books and it sells television series. Truth? Not so much. In fact, Wallace Wells was to be the primary target of my legal efforts. Our first lawsuit would have taken him to court. However, my friend Gerald Maples, who was working pro bono on my behalf for about two years, slept on a dock in the Bahamas and died on December 4th, 2020. Another legal team responded to my call for assistance by email on September 28th, 2022. So this is not very long ago. About a week later, this legal team received a blood soaked message from somebody going by the name the executioner. Not surprisingly, my final message came from this legal team about a week after my first message. It was comprised of only three words. Walk away guy.
0: So why don't they just, why don't they just take you out instead? Go right to the source.
1: The defamation campaign against me was so stunningly successful that there is no need. I haven't been interviewed by a major corporate media
0: outlet. Till today. For five years (laughs) till today.
1: That's exactly right. But let me, you know, I used to be on the news on a pretty regular basis and for five years, not much.
0: So in terms of detractors, uh, Michael Mann, also another friend of yours? <laughs> so I know, this much I know. I didn't know you had a, that, that, that relationship with David uh, Wallace-Wells. But Michael Mann, that's pretty well publicized. He's the uh, Penn State climate scientist who said earlier this year, um, quote, it will only take a few years after net zero emissions for carbon levels in the air to start to go down because of carbon being sucked up by the oceans and forests. Is that scientifically defensible? It certainly sounds very optimistic if it is, but is it defensible?
1: No, absolutely not. There is a minimum 10 year lag between the maximum heating produced by CO2 emissions and the maximum heating. So any carbon dioxide released today takes 10 years to reach its level of maximum heating. In addition, and that's from peer reviewed paper published more than eight years ago. I don't have the reference with me right now. But you can find it in my work, most notably in an essay at guymcpherson.com called extinction foretold extinction ignored. Anyway, a more recent peer-reviewed paper indicates that the larger the emission, the longer it will take mm. for the heating to decelerate up to thousands of years. so to to claim that we're going to solve this thing in a matter of a few years is mm. either rooted in ignorance or or more likely it's an outright lie.
0: Now, maybe part of where man's coming from is that he doesn't want people to give up hope. I mean, one thing he said, uh, I'll quote again: Doomism has become far more of a threat than denialism. It almost sounds like a direct reference to your work. Yes,
1: absolutely. And in, in fact, he referred to me as a doomist cult hero in an article in the Washington Post. And when I was on speaking tours after that, I'd point that out and I'd say that he got it wrong. I'm a doomist cult superhero. Not a
2: doomist
3: <laughs> well, what does your cape look like? <laughs> so, so, guy, it, it, given. You know, what's interesting is the information that you're quoting is all out there. Um, you know, it's not being hidden. The IPCC reports. Well, and that and, yeah. and, and, you know, these various open access uh, entities that anyone can get into. So um, I guess my first question is, since you, you believe this to be true, what, what should humanity do at this point?
1: I have been proposing for many years, along with my partner, the idea of planetary hospice. And planetary hospice would include telling the truth, treating everybody like we treat our ancient dying grandmother, tell her the truth and expect the same from her. That's at the individual level or at the family level. At the community level, let's try to address the horrors that are found in every community within this set of living arrangements, things like racism and misogyny. There's there's a lot of work that we could do at the community level that would make lives better for people who aren't necessarily, oh, I don't know, Caucasian males like me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, heterosexual Caucasian males have experienced a lot of privileges because of the way they look. and. I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. In addition, at the level of society, we could do what I think is absolutely necessary if we are to allow conditions that permit other species to survive in our wake. And that is immediately begin shutting down, safely shutting down nuclear power plants. And the reason for that is Ionizing radiation has been demonstrated in the peer-reviewed literature to strip away stratospheric ozone. And when you strip away that stratospheric ozone, the planet will heat up very, very quickly. As in, I, I don't know if you saw the 2021 film Finch, but it did a remarkable job showing what happens very subtly. It never never came out and said it's from the nuclear power plants melting down, but But because that had happened, people would put their hand out in the sun and in a matter of seconds, it would Mm. be fried. Now, that's a little bit of artistic license. and Probably a few minutes, not a few seconds. But this is an important factor that I don't know anybody is addressing.
0: Hmm. So, uh, you know, human extinction. You're talking about complete end of Homo sapiens and all all other life on the planet. Um, You don't see a remnant of some species, including human beings, surviving somehow?
1: Certainly not humans. We're big vertebrate mammals, and vertebrate mammals are already on their way out. How
0: about about colonies um, on Mars and the moon, led by uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos?
1: You know, we, we didn't even manage to take care of habitat on this planet. And we think we're gonna go create it on another planet and then maintain it. With people like Jeff Bezos leading the way, come on! <laughs> the man tries to send a pickup truck or whatever that was in his base. Oh, that was Musk. Sorry, that was Moss. yeah, that was <laughs>
0: Musk. I get my billionaires mixed up too. It's fine, right? Yeah. Right, I confuse my billionaires. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean that. That's even those who are, I think, share share your viewpoint of just how dire the situation is, um, f- from my conversations and. In my, my readings, uh, they still hold out some hope that, that some element of humanity will survive, perhaps in bunkers in South Dakota, or maybe. Uh, well, the
3: people who are going to survive in bunkers in South Dakota are going to be the wealthy. Sure. And those with resources. So we're just going to be starting a society from exactly the same place. It, not that well, it's going to work, it's not going to
1: work. In addition, we're talking about the loss of habitat right. for. All species, on our, we're talking mm. about a lifeless rock right. immersed in ionizing radiation as the nuclear power plants meltdown. That's not for me. If, mm. if somebody wants to go live in a bunk- bunker and try to secure the services of the slaves who will serve them, well, that's not the life for me either as a slave mm. Mm. or as the bunker owner. So... You know, I just don't see that that's a viable option going it, forward. It,
3: it's really interesting, Guy, because, you know, it, there's an element of, you know, having grown up in the 1950s of, you know, almost going back to the black and white films of that time, addressing, uh, as we're waiting for annihilation. Put your what head, humanity head would, under your Well, desk, well no, yeah. not, not that part of it. No. You know, but, you know, for instance, like a movie like On the Beach, which was about the Australians waiting for the radiation cloud to come from... Europe and the the Americas to eventually you know that they, they would all they would all die too, you know, and kind of what guy's saying is what you know we could we could show some decency and move ahead well, socially or you, what I think will just happen is well, number one, like Obama said, the plan of action will be just lower taxes on the rich from the republicans <laughs> and you know, the other will be, I think people will just say, well, let it rip. <laughs> I yeah. mean, we're just going to well, consume you know, before we go.
0: But well, isn't that the response that some have, some have as well? If it's if it's, if it look, if it's this bleak, we're just going to enjoy the party. Right. I mean, but I think of this Of course. Is, yeah. Of
1: course, people have always been doing that. Partying like it's 1999 since at least 1999. <laughs> yeah. Probably 1899, probably before that. I, I want to read a line to you from the paper by Strone and Bradshaw. That indicates the level of hope these two conservation biologists have in the wake of rapid environmental change. Quote, life could survive in peculiar habitats such as hydrothermal vents, and a rogue, seemingly desert earth wandering across the universe could still have some tiny chance of blooming again under some lucky and unlikely circumstances. That's what we're counting on. Hmm.
0: Yeah, that's not real hopeful. But now um, to push back again, back, uh, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but a while back, you predicted that it would all come crashing down in 2026. That's only four years away. Do you, you want to stand by that? Or do you want to revise that date?
1: My work depends upon the work of other scholars. So if the scholars I quote is correct, and in this case, it's Jennifer McKinnon from the Scripps Institution and James Anderson, the professor emeritus from Harvard, the atmospheric scientist famous for discovering the link between chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone hole. And he he said, and this is quoted in Forbes on January 15, 2018, quote, the chance there will be permanent ice in the Arctic after 2022 is essentially zero. That was after a presentation he delivered in Chicago. And Jennifer McKinnon has more recently come around to the same idea. If if we have that sort of environmental change going from white ice to dark blue ocean, then that will produce profound changes in the environment. And the peer-reviewed literature, a uh, paper in Science a few years ago, indicated that the Arctic is the planetary air conditioner. If we, if we lose the ice in the Arctic, we are in very serious trouble.
0: hmm and it is, uh, you know, the, the, first, uh, the first American, by the way, to sail both directions through the Northwest Passage uh, is an Iowan, uh, a guy named David Thorson. Maybe you know him. And, uh, he, you know, years ago, he tried, he tried to do that for the longest time, couldn't pull it off. And then suddenly, boom, wide open passage right so, yeah. yay anyway you mm-hmm. know yeah yeah no and yay yes that's the response of some shipping lanes woo-hoo. Right. Uh,
3: greater we right. a- consume more
0: greater access for our military <laughs> you know that's uh right. well that's,
1: that's that's kind of stuff i read every day and you know most people just don't understand the importance of habitat they don't even know what habitat is they think it's going to the grocery store and bringing home food that we can cook on our electric ranges yeah and and then beyond habitat what does it mean we you know because we don't know what habitat is it's difficult for us to accept that ours might be changing and certainly changing fast enough to cause our own extinction we're afraid to even talk about death in this society much less death of everybody it's just we we're just afraid to talk about other people you know i grew up in sort of a typical family born in 1960 and that was just something that we never talked about death. It was as if it was never going to happen,
2: right. and of
1: course we know that it happens to everybody, right?
2: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, one one more quick question uh, before we got to run to a break, guy. Uh, you know, even though you see the end as near, you're still active and involved. Why? Why not just go to parties, you know, plant flowers, hang out with the grandkids?
1: Well. I knew that we were headed for a pretty dire situation at the age of 19 in 1979, so I decided not to have children. And that means I don't have any grandchildren.
0: We'll play with someone else's grandkids.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, But no, you're right. Why don't I just party like it's 1999? And the reason for that is, one, I can't help myself. I'm a professor, and I feel this obligation to inform people, even though I haven't received a paycheck since I walked away from that life on May 1st, 2009. And I I still feel like there's... The way people act in the face of impossible odds is a judge of their character. Why would I not inform people what's going on in the world if I know? That would be like medical doctors through the 1960s Who didn't tell their patients that they had a terminal diagnosis it was only in the early 1970s that the medical community decided the ethical approach was to tell people when they were dying to Mm -hmm. give them an approximate time frame of how long they were going to live and this is this is similar in that we're talking about the loss of habitat for our species, and therefore all of us going extinct. It's not that big a difference from telling the truth about a terminal diagnosis. And by the way, to wrap up that idea, we all got a terminal diagnosis at birth. After all, birth is actually a sexually transmitted disease that is proven <laughs> fatal in
0: every case. Well, on that note, Charles, you want to... Tra- well, Charles, no, I by mean, the way... It yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually a
3: palliative care physician, so he I, knows I about absolutely yeah. understand... You know the the context you're trying to uh, put out for us, and yes. um, I, I suspect that the dislodgements that will occur uh, will accelerate the the process of uh, extinction because it it will be it will end up with a fight all against one for what little resources are left. Well, as the
0: as the as the uh, as the talk show host here, and hopefully the remaining. Well, and Ed's big
3: problem is he loses a big topic for talking. A, a, a oh, free. I don't mind that. <laughs> I don't mind that. Yeah. Anyway, Thanks. I
0: I I still have hope. Uh, I I still keep going. I, I think honesty and truth is really important. But I still uh, I, I I I keep fighting because I believe we still have a shot at it. But guy, I <laughs> I really value your perspective. I think it's a a good uh, kick in the kick in the head that we need once in a while. <laughs> so.
1: Well, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you gentlemen very much.
0: So thank you for that opportunity. Folks, you've been talking with Guy McPherson. When we come back from a short break, uh, Charles and I are going to be discussing affirmative action. Has it run run its course? Uh, What will the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decision say about it? Back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines' locally-owned grocery and specialty food store, centrally located at ML King Parkway and Woodland Ave., Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, hand-cut meats, local and international cheeses, wines, and craft beer. Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
2: You're responsible for a lot, and it's easy to become overwhelmed, to feel helpless, even hopeless. What's not so easy is finding your way back to feeling and functioning better. Psychiatrist Dr. David Drake helps individuals and couples throughout Iowa with the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling. Dr. Drake also prescribes medication when needed, and his services are offered on a self-pay basis. If you need help, don't delay. Contact Dr. Drake at daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com.
0: Architecture by Synthesis provides planning, design, and design-build services for high-performance, low-maintenance, affordable homes and buildings. Owner Mark Lipsham is committed to the mission of the Fallon Forum and community radio stations Mark says no matter how you plan or renovate your project, use the most energy-efficient methods you can afford and the greenest, longest-lasting materials available. A beautiful project will be revered, maintained, and valued and is the best investment you can make for a future we all share. Learn more at architecturebysynthesis.com. Welcome back to Fallon Forum. You know, at a time when these big corporations control most of the media, the mainstream media, the niche that we provide here is more important than ever, so please support what we do. Check out the Fallon Forum website. Become a sponsor if you like, and speaking of sponsors, thanks to psychiatrist Dr. David Drake. If you live in Iowa, wherever you live in Iowa, Dr. Drake can help through the convenience and privacy of televideo counseling offered on a self-pay basis contact daviddrakefamilypsychiatry.com. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been caring for all creatures, great and small, for over 30 years. Learn more at Story County Veterinary Clinic's Facebook page. All right, so Charles, um, now that we've um, kind of re- recovered our composure after our previous conversation, okay, we're going to talk about something that, if Guy is right, won't even matter. But in today's world, it matters, and that is affirmative action. Mm-hmm. And been with us a long time. Uh, likely to be going through some significant changes. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad.
3: Give us your perspective on it. Well, I mean, first of all, I, I think we should at least talk about what are the facts in front of us right now. So um, two, basically two cases were taken by the Supreme Court, one involving University of North Carolina, the other involving Harvard, uh, brought by a, a kind of faceless entity by a um, right-wing activist by the name of Ed Blum. He tried this, I'd say to some degree, scam in 2016 with a white female um, who was trying to get entry into UT Austin uh, by the name of Abigail Fisher, Um, and so his, his basic premise, which... N- numerous courts have up to this point said, you know, has no basis, is that the 14th Amendment is not really about the protection of African Americans. It's about the protection of white people. And that basically <laughs> uh, the, equal, <laughs> the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, if you're allowed to use a race-conscious admission policy— um, is taking away the rights of, in the case of Abigail Fisher, white females, and now in the case of the group that he put together, um, which is Asian-Americans. Interestingly, this is a strange case because there's nobody named as being hurt by affirmative action policies. It's this, ne- it's this nebulous group of Asian-American students, um, which he you know, brought suit on behalf of against these two institutions. And basically, um, the claim that they're making is that the use of any uh, judgment in terms of race to favor one applicant over another um, is, again, discrimination both under the 14th Amendment and Title VI. That's kind of
0: turning the 14th Amendment on its head. Well,
3: and that's why it's brilliant. (laughs) I mean, that's why it's a brilliant legal policy, uh, uh, you know, kind of. Um, approach and it's brilliant because they're using another minority mm. to bring this so that makes it seem as though women well no no they're using asian americans oh, this, 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 this case, right yeah, yeah. i was thinking of Ab- abigail fisher right so which is the best anglo-saxon name ever <laughs> but um so you know what they're presenting again is that in spite of the fact that at the lower court levels um, they, the lower courts felt that this fit, that you can have racial consciousness in admissions. You cannot make race the only factor in deciding whether someone's going to be admitted or not. Is that unreasonable? What, which is what? To use race as a factor? A factor, but not the only factor. No, I think it's perfectly reasonable. Okay. And I'm saying this is somebody who was involved in medical school admissions, um, as well as for over 10 years in terms of resident, choosing residents, which is another process where you, this done, comes you, into you've fact. Done, and, you've done a lot of that. That's correct. Yeah. So let's look at the facts, which it doesn't really matter because we already know how the court's going to rule based on—
0: well, you, well, why don't you tell us? Well, we'll the court get, is clearly get that, gonna, out, get that
3: out of the way. Right. They're, they're clearly going to rewrite that they're going to take race— as a factor out, even race conscious, where it's not a, pr- it's not the only factor. So, what are the facts? We know that in in places like California, by the way, which got rid of race as a factor in 1998. Was that by referendum? Uh, it was, in fact, mm-hmm. following you know the Bakke <clears throat> case, which was, mm-hmm. uh, it, I believe, involved the admissions at UC Davis, where I used to live and also used to work. Um, so. We know that the result of that has been that the uh, graduation rates for African-Americans has gone down year after year after year. And, and that is with other efforts, outreach, trying to find other factors that might serve as a surrogate, um, even to the point of just using zip codes to try mm-hmm. to identify populations so, so- that would likely be represented. Because let's face it. The issue here is that in terms of getting into elite schools, and that's also, you know, the big the big state schools, as well as Ivy's and some of the other sure. Stanfords and things like that, um, that coming from a, a economically disadvantaged part of the country. Now, economically disadvantaged part of the country also includes a lot of white people. Sure. It includes a lot of rural places mm-hmm. in this country. Yeah. So, you know, they've tried to, again, going as— Really, um, you know, uh, unidentifiable in terms of what is how they're choosing the, uh, the students to consider as zip codes. We don't know, I don't know what the zip codes constitute, right? But they would basically come up with lists of favored zip codes in trying to get diversity. But the problem was that it, it simply led to more less affluent white kids such that so, the African-American population of students went down. So, so back to UC Davis. Yeah. Again, you lived there, you worked there, you went to school there. Right. I, I, I taught there. Taught there, okay, right. yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, after, after California's uh, California's policy on affirmative, mm-hmm. affirmative action changed through referendum, what was that 1998, you said? I believe 1998, yeah. And, and so for the next 24 years, I don't know how far, how recent the data is, well but have, have, uh, black admission, admissions have declined or black graduations both. have declined both both right. are, are there other
3: ways of explaining that other than the change in policy um, i just it doesn't to- seem it yeah i mean it doesn't seem likely because they've made other efforts and they still could not get the class up that way um and, and, you know, Doc, uh, uh, Justice Thomas, who has a real thing with affirmative action that is about that he feels his accomplishments are diminished by affirmative action because at least up to the point of becoming a Supreme Court justice, he felt that he was seen as a token, that he basically, you know, other people saw him as not having accomplished and, and gotten there by his own efforts, but that he was favored because he was African American. So to him, it's very much a personal thing. Right. Um, that would explain president obama as well right well I'm, I'm, obama I'm, I mean, actually you know, in all fairness obama <laughs> obama did say somewhat the same thing not to the same level of depth as as a, a grievance that that clarence thomas <laughs> brings it but the he asked, he kept asking the question well what does diversity bring well what diversity brings now is pretty clear which is it tends to make a environment in which even people who are not necessarily expanding their groups of friends to include a lot of the minority kids that are admitted, they tend to become more aware of uh, a multiracial society and, and their attitudes reflect that. They learn skills in terms of groups that are not homogeneous, how to deal in the future, tends to be higher levels of civic engagement. You know, and so... I think that there's a lot of literature out there saying that, yes, diversity does matter. Now, you know me. I have a real problem with I'm really tired of skin color being any kind of surrogate for the level of people's capabilities. Because we know that the, you know, the spectrum of achievement is pretty you – know, the bell curve is pretty much the same from skin color to skin color. It's not necessarily the same unaided for when you're disadvantaged by the fact that because of your skin color, you're given, yes, they're supposed to be equal schools, but they're not equal schools, right? You're also disadvantaged because the way that admissions start, especially in medical school now, where the numbers are astronomical or are, are, are trying for a limited number of spaces, you have to find something to make the group smaller. And usually it's it's to take the MCAT, the entrance exam. Yeah, take the smartest right. kids. Well, it's to take a score and then yeah. get rid of everybody else just so you have a group to deal with. You cannot yeah. do holistic admissions on the group that is, um, you know— it, it, it the size of the group right. that we now have. And the other problem is the people who are economically advantaged, what they economically are advantaged in doing, among other things, is taking courses to learn how to take these tests. Right. And,
0: and, and the tests, who are the tests written by?
3: Well, they're written by various educational
0: services. Right. But they're probably not written by people who really have a
3: good understanding. Well, of no. In like fact, that's, up up why, that's why many universities have gotten rid of the SAT and the ACT yeah. at yeah. all. Yeah. Because they, they feel that it cannot be made... Uh, you know, fair to everyone, mm.
0: but you know. <sighs> so does, does that does that winnowing process in med school uh, eliminate a lot of Black and Latino students?
3: Well, we know that the winnowing process, yeah, at the entrance to med school, it mm-hmm. appear to because less than five percent of physicians in the United States are people of color. That would definitely that would definitely suggest that that's happening, um, and. You know, I, I'll tell you, like, for instance, what my process was. Now, you know, what everybody thinks, this is, this, is, this is the way it's being presented to the American people, that if one person gets in because some of these factors are advantaging them, then somebody else who would have gotten in doesn't get in. Okay. Right. They don't seem to have as much of a problem with the fact that, let's say, at Harvard, that 30% of their students come from um, 5% of the applicants. And those applicants are legacies, um, children of faculty being on the honor roll what is at it, your what do you school? mean by legacy uh you gave a lot of money to harvard or uh. you went to harvard and oh, you really? gave a that, lot of money that, to harvard that gives you an inside leg oh yeah oh. and and even at the ivies being an athlete why, why should i not be surprised right being a, being an athlete at the ivies there's no scholarships because they're basically division 3 but <laughs> they do want athletes and so everybody's it, and, and and this is what was so ridiculous was They didn't even make the argument that they could point to a specific Asian American who didn't get a slot because some person of color, other color, got a slot, right? And certainly the reason that affirmative action as it was initially configured, which was almost kind of like a quota, which is that the student body should look a lot like the percentage in the population. Well, Asian Americans, for instance, make up 28% of the class at Harvard. That's well in excess of the population. So in fact, if we go to something that doesn't even consider race, they may well be disadvantaged because it leaves mm. in place the biggest problem for them, which is this very subjective uh, score that they're given, you know, based on interviews with, with alumni and the guidance counselors from the schools and everything else. And they've been, you know, disadvantaged by this, quote, personal score. So it, it's this zero-sum game, which is ridiculous. And it's always about that people of color are advantaged by affirmative action. Now, the bigger plot here is that people like Blum, because he's also the person who brought the Shelby case or helped in the Shelby case. Tell which us what was, that well, is. Well, the Shelby case was the one that, that you know uh, eliminated, essentially, a good part of the Voting Rights Act, hmm. saying that here again. So just kind of a solid progressive across the board. Right. Yeah. yeah. And here again, um, he's now bringing it in terms of college admissions. But the, the overall game plan, the next thing is going to be favorable contracting, for instance, that the federal government does based on wanting to have uh, certain groups that are disadvantaged, which include, by the way, women uh, in the contracting. Um, and actually, I, I, would, I would say for the listener— the women are the next group because the you know the various interventions of the federal government that have allowed women now to be 15% uh, to have a spread of 15% over men in terms of graduating college where it used to be just 15 20 years ago it was just the opposite um, so 15% more of the graduates are now are women. Right, and men. it was flipped from where it was 15 to 20 years ago. And how, and how do we, to what do we attribute that? Because the federal government intervened so that um, they, these institutions were forced to equalize mm-hmm. the ability of women to enroll and to get financial aid and to do the sports and everything else. And so um, this, that's the next target group which is, and you're already seeing it. You're already seeing that there are people out there talking about how men are failing in this country, right? And they're failing not because of their own problem, but they're failing because they are forced to be in schools that don't that they are disadvantaged in because sitting in a classroom and following direction and not being, you know, like so wired... Um, favors women to do better in school. So we should change school so that men can do better. Yeah. Okay? But no, I mean, this is, this, is, is, this is my point, which is that whatever you may think about affirmative action, because I really despise the use of color as some marker for capability. Right. Um, but the, the next thing down the line is going to be, first... To go after things like federal contracting. Second, then to turn it around on women, because they've also been given some structural advantages. Well, not structural advantages, but they, but they've been given some advantages through federal action. That could certainly be turned around, depending on who's in charge. Mm. You know, and um, and now we're also looking at another case here where um, religious organizations are really trying to expand their ability to discriminate against people who. Uh, are their employees for instance um, based on you know things like being lgbtq sure or being the wrong religion so yeah. this is a steady march to basically trying to somehow say this is kind of like the war on christmas thing right mm. you know the, the, you know and that's that's a, a big one that fox likes but now we have the war on white men right and straight, they're using straight white men. Well, whatever. But the, the, but the war on white men. And in this case, they're using Asian Americans to do the dirty work. Hmm. You know, and previously it was Abigail Fisher. Right. Previously it was it was a white woman. Right. But mm-hmm. actually, and, and it, it was only 2016. She failed twice in front of the Supreme Court in terms of making this case. But of course, the court is different now, and there's no doubt that they're going to get rid of affirmative action now
0: so is there an appropriate role for affirmative action i mean yes let let, let me put it this way are there appropriate changes that should be made
3: it I, i think those changes were already there you know you the the lawyer for unc said you understand that there are multiple minority candidates who have higher test scores than than white people that you know white students that we let in and this notion that you can say two people are exactly the same based on any sort of you know totally objective um, evaluation based on test scores and grades is ludicrous. I mean I can tell you this, this is my experience, okay? In 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 terms of resonant applications, 75% of the students look pretty much the same. Okay? They are science majors um, Everybody works for Habitat for Humanity to show, you know, their their, their volunteerism. Um, you know, they, they go to fairly similar schools. They write a fairly similar statement. You know, and, and as a as a residency director, I don't want a program of clones.
0: Well, but and
3: because you have to think, who who is the clientele? Who who are the patients? Correct. That's exactly right. You want 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 a community. You want a diversity. That's my whole point. And, you know, for instance, I would hold one spot for non-traditional students. That spot might be Caribbean graduates. That might be somebody who's coming at it. They're 40 years old. You know, because I'll tell you something. Taking a bunch of 26-year-olds coming out of medical school who've done nothing but the lockstep and then did science, you get a lot of people who are not particularly emotionally mature. You know, and to get through residency, you need some real resiliency and emotional maturity. And I'd rather have a 35-year-old person whose MCAT was mediocre or, you know, their USMLE was mediocre, but they've got a lot of life experience. They have a lot of, um, you know, uh, of evidence that they will be able to handle the tough situation that a residency is. These are subjective judgments. The notion that Somebody stole my spot is just another sense of entitlement in so, this country.
0: So isn't part of the problem is who's in charge of these residency programs? How I do, so? Well, I mean, who's who? Who's the people making the selections are not, not selecting the diversity of university you just described.
3: I would say that's partly true, but it's also partly true that particularly at the higher level residencies, it's the same issue which is that people who come from socially-advantaged situations are going to tend to be selected in those, in, mm. in, in those programs, whereas the less traditional programs, like the osteopathic programs this one used to be, we're already seeing these kind of first-generation applicants, you know, and it is a problem, because if you pick a bunch of people to do medicine who identify with upper-middle-class and higher values, they're not going to go to the rural communities to take care of people. Mm. They're not going to go to the, in right. the inner cities to take care of people for the most part. Right. They are going to stay with the type of communities they are used to. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's a great argument right there. Um, so what if uh, what if Guy McPherson is wrong and we are not, not extinct in five years? Uh, what's the future hold for affirmative action
3: given the current political alignment in the U.S.? I would say that... These things will be tried to be accomplished in other ways. You know, maybe looking in some way of identifying lower socioeconomic class applicants, which is, is a neutral position.
0: Because ultimately, no matter what government or the court does, uh, institutions, colleges, universities, hospitals mm. can do what they want to do, they, they, they can implement. Uh, a policy that sees that the uh, diversity of uh, people are accepted into their programs.
3: Right. But but the problem is that as the information came out in this case, and it was the reason why the lower courts ruled in favor of the two universities, as it came out, this form of affirmative action did, in fact, generate more mm. access for, the, for these groups. All right. Hey, folks, we're going
0: to take a short break. Uh, Charles, thanks for joining us today. When we come back, uh, Kathy Burns is going to join me, and we're going to be talking about... Uh, Oh, how um, how whether this year has impacted food production and how it might impact food production down the road back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is Des Moines locally owned grocery and specialty food store with over 5,000 items to choose from you can order groceries online and the Gateway team will bring them to you curbside. It's a convenient way to shop from anywhere and save time Gateway's Cafe is open for dine-in, carry-out, and delivery service seven days a week, with catering and floral services also available. Visit gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community.
2: At Story County Veterinary Clinic, Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant, well, if you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's clients stick with her year after year because they know she'll do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Kim a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766, that's 232-8766.
0: At Westrom Optometry, Dr. Joel Westrom and his team provide a variety of services including comprehensive eye exams, children's eye exams, and LASIK co-management. Whether strictly utilitarian or a fashion statement, your comfort and vision are Westrom's primary concern. Dr. Westrom and his staff will work closely with you to determine the best solution for your eyes, prescription, and lifestyle. Services are provided in English and Spanish, and the clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. till 5 p.m. and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrom Optometry located in Des Moines East Village. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. You can support this alternative to the Shock Jocks by becoming a monthly donor or a business sponsor or a nonprofit sponsor. Check out the Fallon Forum website for details. Uh, thanks to Westrum Optometry, located in Des Moines East Village. Uh, Dr. Joel Westrom and his staff are fluent in English and Spanish. The clinic is open Monday through Friday from 9am until 5pm and on Saturdays by appointment. That's Westrum Optometry. Kathy Burns is with me, uh, Birds and Bees Urban Farm, and uh, as we always do on this program, we save the last segment for a conversation about farm and food issues. Today, I believe we're going to be talking about the impact that climate change has had and will have on food production. Kathy, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks. Uh, At Birds and Bees Urban Farm, of course, we, we grow food, and this year we saw impact of some changing climate on our crops, and we are not alone, it seems. No,
0: and there have been some bigger issues across the country, well, and across the world, really, but, uh, and I was glad to see some attention given to this in the media recently.
2: Right, Uh, a story in The Guardian was discussing the fact that uh, this year, alone in western U.S., it's the 22nd year of a once-in-a-life, a a a once-in-a-millennium mega-drought. (laughs) <laughs> um, and and uh, this year the U.S. has already seen more than two dozen major climate disasters
0: Yeah, and again we saw some issues in terms of uh, crops being able to pollinate mm-hmm. And I believe weren't, uh, weren't tomatoes, uh, the commercial grade, uh, you know, large-scale tomato production also affected?
2: Yes, yeah The Guardian story discusses uh, disruptions in production of citrus Mainly, you know, oranges and lemons and such in Florida, rice, wheat, and tomatoes. And the one one that we have in common is the tomatoes. So, first, we can talk about the citrus in Florida. Um,
0: Because it's citrus season.
2: Yeah, yeah. And last (laughs) September, uh, Hurricane Ian hit in late September. So, Fifty to ninety percent of fruits were ripped from trees, and I think those are preliminary numbers because they're still bringing some some figures in. Right
0: across the entire state, or just in the region where Ian came through?
2: Uh, I in the in the region okay. where Ian came through, right, the Gulf Coast. So. Um, the growers were already facing challenges, uh, a disease, an invasive bacterium that thrives in warm climates, and mm. that's what we've had more mm-hmm. of, uh, can kill trees. So they were already weakened and compromised. Well, you, and
0: you know, you, you think of, uh, of weather calamities hitting Florida's citrus crop, and you think about a freeze, and I have these images of, and that's of workers too. out there lighting torches and mm-hmm. spraying the plants with waters to keep them from freezing. Yeah.
2: Um, The USDA predicts that the state will be down 32% of production from last season. That's the smallest harvest since 1943. So what's that
0: going to do to the price of orange juice?
2: Whatever happens, we're going to blame it on Biden. (laughs)
0: Um,
2: Yeah, next season's crop could also be impacted because not only did some trees have fruit ripped off the branches, but the the trees themselves were uprooted. Oh, because the wind took them out. Yeah, mm -hmm. wow. Mm -hmm. Mm. And uh, in California... I didn't know California was uh, such a large rice producer, but mm, um, the, in, in the world, rice, wheat, and corn provide half the world's calories, and uh, this year, California rice growers only expect about half the usual crop. It's the lowest number of seeds planted since the 1950s. Wow. And that's because of drought and water rights, whereas rice growers have first rights to water, uh, there just wasn't enough. So some growers opted not to even plant. They maybe mm. did something different this year.
0: And I wonder if that will have any, I don't I don't know if California's rice crop is exported or pretty much for use in the U.S.
2: But, uh, but half of it's exported half of it is to exported. Uh, Japan and really? China. Yep, about wow. half usually in the Sacramento Valley. So anyway. that's,
0: that, that's yeah, that's a problem when you've got uh, what two thirds of the world's population uh, see rice as one as its primary it's grain. It's staple. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
2: Uh, so Californians uh, uh, who grow the wheat are considering moving productions to cooler climates, uh, northern California, China. So um, of course that that will require land that might already be in production for some other food. Mm. So. That's going to have a big impact.
0: And what about wheat? Well... Uh, my my favorite grain. Mine too. <laughs> and
2: since, uh, of course, since the war in Ukraine, uh, mm. there's been a global wheat mm-hmm. shortage. In uh, Spain, France, India, and the U.S., uh, droughts, flooding, impacting you know wheat production everywhere. In the U.S. in particular, the red winter wheat uh, in Kansas... And other Midwestern states the harvest was down 20 25 percent because of drought Wow and the spring wheat that's uh, that's the one that's not used so much for bread it's used for bagels and pizzas things that mm-hmm. require a lower gluten um, there was a there was a blizzard that uh, took out and you know caused some floods for the spring crops too
0: yeah I mean I I, I know that I, I believe that there are some Efforts by scientists to develop new strains mm-hmm. of wheat, or at least genetically modified wheat crops, which
2: I guess that's I how they develop. Mixed though. feelings
0: about them, but uh, <laughs> about that. But uh, but they're trying to uh, trying to get some of that going at a, in in you know in in a timely way that could allow next year's crop to be less impacted. I don't
2: right. I know how positive that is. Well, unfortunately, there was a story in Nature earlier this year that it, it may not even be possible. For mm. these new varieties to get a foothold mm. that keeps mm. up with the pace okay. of climate change. I'm um, sorry to be such a downer. <laughs> Debbie Downer, <laughs> well, Kathy we, Catastrophe. Well, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's been the nature of our program today, I'm afraid. <laughs> but uh, tomatoes. Well, that's, a, that's the one I was, uh, we started off with. We might as well wrap up with tomatoes. Yeah, these are
2: the, the the large tomatoes that you mentioned are produced in California for the sauces, the ketchups, the paste, that kind of thing. And uh, they usually grow about 30% of the world's tomatoes for that. They're mm. down um, by 10.5 million tons this year and, oh no, sorry, that is the, the production. That's, it's down 10% from what they predicted at the beginning of the year. And uh, predictions are that it's going to fall another six percent by twenty fifty or so due to climate change, and th- yeah. they always well, mention uh, the the reason why the, is yeah, that yeah, the, climate uh, change. The, the, the
0: water situation. I mean, God. The, the, again, the mega drought. What the, the drought that you would expect once every thousand years, mm-hmm. and we've had two of those in a in a row, back and back to back, 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 back years. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and again, we see this stuff on uh, on. Uh, on a you know on, on a low on, on, on a very specific level here on birds and bees urban farm mm-hmm. uh, pollination being a problem when it gets too hot it was
2: too hot this year and
0: some crops just don't do as well when it uh, when it gets heat, gets really warm uh, hey Kathy thank you very much uh, and thanks to our guest today Guy McPherson thanks also to our production team of Sherry Herdina, Forrest Determan, Charles Goldman Kathy Burns and myself Ed Fallon thanks to our local small business partners Gateway Marketing Cafe Architecture by Synthesis, Story County Veterinary Clinic, Western Optometry, and Dr. David Drake Family Psychiatry. Thanks also to our nonprofit partners, Birds and Bees Urban Farm and Bold Iowa. Remember, your support for this program matters a lot, so go to the Fallon Forum website and learn more about what you can do to make a difference. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week with another hour of Cutting Edge Talk Radio.